Broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep beneath glorious downtown Fairmont, the Expression Booth is proud to present Pop Tarts Are Good For You with Shelby and Joshy. Josh, this is the sound of my voice. My name is Shelby, and uh, I guess this is the sound of my voice. You don't want to confuse people. Well, because we sound a lot alike, right? <laughs> we, we both have those, you know. Yeah, there, there's someone out there who's just going to be like, you know, I love the show, but I can't tell who's who. So. <laughs> who's Joshy? Who, who's Shelby? Yeah. Who, who are these people? So I, I thought, I don't know, I just thought we would kind of introduce what we're doing here and, and why. Um, just a, a pop culture podcast of random things that flood into our heads. And uh, I know there are people out there who kind of feel the way I do. Um, I was on Spotify and I was searching for a Nick Cage podcast. Now, I didn't want a podcast where people broke down Nick Cage movies. I wanted a podcast where someone talked about Nick Cage. Okay. Just Nick Cage. Yeah, just, well, not, maybe not just, but, you know, I'm talking like getting into like the insane, absurd madness that is Nick Cage, you know, just, just for like half an hour. I mean, that's all I wanted. And it doesn't exist. It's not out there. So (laughs) I I thought I would, you know, I would get a show where I could talk about just briefly some crazy things that are going on in Nick Cage's life, maybe. Um, Some crazy things that might be happening to Jared Leto. People that I appreciate just for the sake of appreciating them. I mean, really, uh, if you're, especially if you're gonna see something like Morbius, you just, you, you can only watch that movie with an appreciation of Jared Leto. You can't go into it thinking, I'm gonna see a good film here because it's not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. You have to be like, you know what? I really love this Leto guy. He is just my kind of nuts and he is, nuts. The dude grew up on a commune, okay? And so he's a method actor, like he, he's very absorbed in his role, you know? I know I'm going out of uh, sequence here, but I thought for a Leto Ubeto, <laughs> I could just I uh, would just uh, talk about how, um, you know, how much I appreciate Jared and how crazy I think he is and how awesome that happens to be. He's a strange, beautiful man. Uh, I first... <laughs> I first uh, encountered Jared Leto way back in the day when I was 11 years old, watching my so-called life because I'm a child of the 90s, and uh, you know, in the 90s there was no, there's no Hulu or anything, so no. you don't know. Like I, I remember being an 11 year old kid. I was, you know, in, I was advanced, and I'd go up the street, and the girl up the street was 13, I believe, and her and her mom would watch my so-called life, and they'd also watch Melrose Place and. Uh, 90210, Beverly oh. Hills. I didn't watch those, but my so-called life was just, it absorbed me, man. It was 19 episodes, and I was an 11-year-old kid, and this to me was the projection of high school. This is, this is what I have in store for me, right? Because so I'm only a few years off. I'm just a few years into going into this. And later, now as an adult watching it now, I see it as like, the epitome of the 90s, you know, when you're in it, it's just a show, <laughs> you know. You're right, It's right. just, you know, I, that Claire Danes girl is, is cute. She was 15 at the time, so she wasn't too much older than me, but uh, Jared Leto was 23, I believe, when he started that show. It was his first break. 
as Jordan Catalano, and uh, I'm going to talk about this <laughs> ad nauseum. People are going to be like, why? Why won't he shut up about my so-called life? Why? Because it's embedded in me, friends. Everyone listening out there, it's like in my soul. It's, it's wrapped up in there. Now, was Jordan Catalano a, a great guy? No. He was a dick. He was. He was not good. He was not good to Angela, really. Uh, he wasn't really that good to everybody else. He, he had problems. You know, he was kind of abused, you find out, and he's dyslexic and all those things. But uh, I was just enamored with... Jared Leto, you know, I just I thought he was great, and he's beautiful. That's that's the other he thing. Is, he is beautiful. He, you know, he, it's, it's, it, his first uh, the first shot of him, you just see those striking blue eyes. You know, I mean, he, it, 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 you know, for the show, I mean, it's she's infatuated with him. So the first shot you see is essentially her view of him, and he's just gorgeous, and it's like kind of in slow mo. So you kind of get the feeling like this is the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I'm 11, I see this show, and it, it goes off the air after 19 episodes, so you can't really follow it or anything. Uh, so later on in life, much later, uh, <coughs> I see him everywhere, you know, in little things, you know, not, not, not necessarily as a uh, uh, leading actor, but in little, like, like Fight Club, he's in Fight Club, and his the, his name in Fight Club is Angel Face because he's the most beautiful person there, aside from Brad Pitt. I mean, let's let's not split hairs here. Okay. Oh, oh, really? But you think? I mean, in the movie, you know. I mean, Brad Pitt spends most of the movie with his shirt off. You, you see where he's trying to get here. Oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah. But Jared Leto was so beautiful that his own his only description is Angel Face because he has the face <laughs> of an angel. And there's a scene in in the movie where Edward Norton kind of loses it and just starts beating the hell out of him. I mean, he just starts punching him and punching him to the point where he really messes him up, you know. And Brad Pitt says, you know, where'd you go, Psycho Boy? And he said, I just want to destroy something beautiful. And that's all you need to know, you know. And I'm sure they gave that to Jared. They were like, hey, you're, okay, you're going to be Angel Face. And look, you're, you're going to be that beautiful, beautiful thing that gets destroyed later in the movie. Are you okay with that? And he's probably like, yes, of course I'm okay with that. Some am Leto. Of course. Uh, but, you know, later on, yes, he became like, I mean, he's Morbius now. He's a, he's a Marvel superhero, a- anti-hero? I don't know what you'd call him, really, because Morbius is kind of a villain, and in the movie, I don't know if you saw the movie, but he's more of an anti-hero, you know. <laughs> Everyone keeps saying it's a, it's a horrible movie. It's the worst Marvel movie. And I say to them... Have you seen Hulk? <laughs> I, I'm not seeing inc- The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. That's different. That's a good movie. Yes. I'm talking 2006 Hulk with Eric Bana, okay? Yes. I was working for Disney when I saw this movie, and a bunch of us got together, and we were like, we're going to go see this movie. It's going to be the big thing because it's like 2006, and the only thing we had thus far is like X-Men, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, we're going to start it all off, and here's Hulk. And... I'm, I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Jennifer Connelly being in that movie, I would have walked out. <laughs> I really, I would have left. And I, I don't walk out on movies. I've never walked out on a movie before in my life. I would have left that one. I was just so, I, I just, I couldn't get through it. Nick Nolte is the villain. There you go, folks. Nick Nolte is the villain in the movie. That's all you need to know. When you pick this thing up in the Walmart or wherever you happen to be, and you're like, you know, I might want to watch this movie. It's, it's about the Incredible Hulk. Nick Nolte is the villain. 
So put that thing away. You don't need to watch that. It was terrible. Morbius is actually watchable. It's enjoyable. Matt Smith, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. Matt Smith is, I, I guess you would say he's the villain of the, of the story. He is phenomenal. Now, Jared Leto is pretty good, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty good. I'm, I'm not going to say he, it's, it's his finest performance by any means, but if you're looking for a terrible Marvel movie, those exist, and this ain't one of them, okay? It's actually enjoyable. It's watchable. Uh, the fact that they released it twice, thinking, well, we'll really get something here because people like these memes, that's that's a fault on Sony's part. That's not to do with Jared, okay? he's <laughs> He wasn't the idiot who thought of that. That's somebody else. But it's an okay movie, really. It's not bad. I mean, I, I we'll get into this later about how... I'm sure I'll bring it up many times. <laughs> these little these little things I see with Jared in them and, and his, his craziness. I mean, he... Uh, he's a method actor, deeply, deeply method. Um, so much so that for Morbius, he's he's got crutches. He's like terminally ill, you know, and he develops this uh, vampire bat serum that makes him a living vampire. All right, so at, at that point, he's healthy and fit and everything, you know. But before that, he's got these crutches, and he's got he's walking very slowly and everything. During the production, he used the crutches every single time to go to the bathroom. So because he needed to be in that space, right? He he needed to feel that pain. And you do too, I guess, while you watch the movie. But so every single time he was like, hey, I gotta, I gotta go to the bathroom. He hobbled with these crutches to and from to the point where production was just like, we we can't do this anymore. They bought a wheelchair specifically so that a production staff could wheel him to him from the bathroom. He, he was okay with this, but still think about that. Think about it. And, it, and this goes beyond Morbius. Like my, what I think of is Suicide Squad where he's the Joker. Yes. And just think, of, think about the fact that you're, you're working with this guy for 13, 16 hours a day, just like trying to get this movie hammered out. You take a break, you're like, all right, Jared, that's Mr. J to you. Like, no, friend. I mean, at, at some point, we have to let this stop, you know? And he just doesn't do it. He's just like, I'm Mr. J, you know? He, he has to be in it. He has to be in it. That would drive me batty. As a, as a, an actor, that would drive me absolutely insane. Uh, is it worth it? I don't know. I, I think it's the worst Joker. Uh, sorry, sorry, Jared, but... It's, the it's worst. not good. Yeah. But just the the fact that and there are other actors who are like this, like Peter Wheeler, Robocop, is another example where he he's in this suit and and Robocop's one of my favorite movies of all time, so I know everything about this movie. And it's it's just it, they shot it and it was sweltering. And he's in this giant foam suit. And he's he's learning with a mime how to how to move as a robot in the suit, right? So they stop filming. He's still in the suit. Everything he go to the bathroom, where, what have you, to craft services. He walks as a robot, and you must call him Murphy. You must. Everyone on set must call him Murphy. And it's just, it's like the same thing with the crutches. Like how you, you realize that we're spending so much time here while you walk around like a robot, Peter. Like you can just take the suit off and sit down. It's fine. I, I'm pretty sure everyone's okay with that. I'm pretty sure everyone would be like, hey, Peter. You can sit over here, man. Do you want some from Craft Services? We'll we'll go. We'll help you out, bro. Like, don't worry. But no, he had to just the whole time. 
I find that fascinating. I do. And so I'm going to pepper that in everywhere I can. My love of Leto and Nick Cage and other absurd, insane people that uh, <laughs> my, my wife can't take it anymore. My friends, my wife can't take it anymore. I just, I, I'm sitting there and I'm just going off about how, you know, Nick Cage's island is up for sale. And she's like, you know, it just doesn't matter to her. So to save her sanity, I started to, <laughs> I wanted to start this podcast. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I mean, the only thing I really know about Jared Leto is one of my favorite movies, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm getting ready to read the book. I never read the book. <laughs> so I'm, ex- but um, I own the movie Fight Club. I've never watched Fight Club. So now I'm going to watch Fight Club because I, 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 I think I, I'm, I'm almost positive that I was 13 when it came out. I, I'm pretty sure. I, have, I, I mean, my theory is that we uh, at, at when we enter puberty and also when we sort of lose our virginity, we, we tend to hold on to those moments and, and everything around, like our like the music and the movies and those things sort of define us, whether we want to or not. I mean, I I don't always think it, it's a conscious choice, but I think we just kind of solidify in those moments, you know, the things around us that kind of make us who we are. And when I was 13, uh, my grandmother just, she would call and, and say, what are the boys like? And my mom would say, you know, Josh likes romantic comedies. Jake likes sci-fi. Like, that was the, the basis, you know. And she would get things that fell into those categories. So when I was 13 years old, my grandmother got me Jerry Maguire on VHS. Jerry Maguire remains to this day my favorite movie of all time. Like, there, nothing has ever surpassed Jerry Maguire. And I feel like it's because I was 13. I... I had I, it was the moment where I had a sense of myself, I guess mm-hmm. you know, and like this movie just made complete sense to me. Cameron Crow uh, wrote it and directed it, and if no one, if you don't know Cameron Crow, turn this podcast off. Just <laughs> you don't need to be here. <laughs> Get out of your uh, bar, walk away. Yeah, no, but I, th- that was my favorite movie ever, and it, it still is. And it's just because it, it's just it's in my soul now, you know. And uh, I th- so I think around that time, Fight Club came out. Maybe I was older than that. But it was, again, one of those situations where she just said, what does he want? And I mentioned Fight Club. And I'd never seen it. I just knew it came out on VHS. VHS, my friends. <laughs> VHS. It came out on VHS. And, and so that was given to me. And I remember just like, uh, Christmas is off. Oh, great. Thank you, everybody. Went home and watched Fight Club. I just popped it right in the VCR. Didn't even care. And... Uh, yeah, there he was, Jared. And, you know, it's and it's there and I'll was. just mention, you know, it's the same, this the same feeling that came over me when I when I saw Thirty Seconds to Mars, is uh, like, holy crap, it's Jordan Catalano, and he did it, and he's he like because you know, when you watch a show like that, especially when you're a kid, the idea that the person in the show is going to be out in the world and they're going to continue is kind of beyond you, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, now it's so much easier because you can just, and anything put on film is easily accessible but, you know, I'm talking like 94, 95 where, you know, this my so-called life was 19 episodes and that was it it ended and you you didn't know if it was going to come back, you're like you don't, you don't hear those things, like now it's everywhere, you look up Google, it's like this is cancelled, 
you just don't know. So it's like you hold on to this, like, remember that show? That was so great. <laughs> you know, like, remember remember that guy? He was just, you know, Catalano was just the best. But you can't go any further than that in the, in the 90s anyway. You can't take it any further unless someone else is a fan. You know, they have no idea what you're talking about. So to be out in the world and be like, you know, because in the, in the show, Jordan Catalano has a band. At first, it's called uh, Frozen Embryos. The only time you hear anyone play in the band is Jared Leto. He plays a song on acoustic guitar for Claire Dane's character, Angela. But you don't hear the band because the, the running joke in the show is this guy, Tino, who you never see. He's just the guy. So they're waiting for – Tino's in the band. They're waiting for him to show up. Obviously, he doesn't show up because Tino never shows up. So you hear him play this song. So cut to like – you know, 10, 15 years later, I mean, I don't even remember when they came out, but like 30 Seconds to Mars, and there there he is on stage doing what, what you can only assume Frozen Embryos would have sounded like, you know, like from the look of them, from, I mean, you see the other guys in the band and from what they're, they're, you know, they're amping up and nothing happens, but you just got this sense of like, finally he's brought frozen embryos to life, you know? And for me, it was, that was what my realization, like, oh my God, Jared, you know, Jordan Catalano did it. You know, he, he got the band, he did it. And then when, you know, seeing him in Fight Club or something else, it's like, man, that's the guy that I remember watching every week and just being like, like I idolized him, you know? And there he is in a movie. He's in other movies, he's in so many movies, folks. So many movies. <laughs> so you can just easily find something, just turn it on and be like, I get my Leto fix. But as a, you know, twenty something, and not you know. I mean, I, I can't stress enough. I got a cell phone in college, junior in college. I, uh, you know, Google was around, of course, but like you know, prior to like you know my junior year of college, I didn't I didn't have a laptop. I mean, it wasn't like everyone had a laptop. Everyone had a cell phone. Uh, Google wasn't Google as it is now. You could still find things and you could you know look it up, but. Like, you know, to be a 90s kid and to, to see these things you love, you just have to hold on to them. Now you can just find them anywhere you want, you mm -hmm. know. So I think that, that has a lot to do with it in that I've, I held on to this person or this show, you know, for so long. And only now it's like you can watch it on Hulu anytime you want, <laughs> you know. But I held on to it for like 20 years before that, you know. So these things resonate in me and it's like I – it's hard to – express them and, and uh, I don't know, have some kind of understanding and, and through a podcast it's a lot easier to, to do that, I think. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to just all the things that I loved and held on to, especially 90s things, just kind of like let them out and let other people hear it. And maybe maybe someone out there is like, oh, yeah, I love Jordan Catalano. I can watch that on Hulu. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Am I promoting Hulu right now? Yeah. I, I don't know why. Um, they, they're not giving us any money, but... Just for the moment, I mean, for the moment, right now, you can watch my so-called life on Hulu if you choose. I don't know what will happen after that, but, you know. It's there. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. I'm a new nerd. So growing up was much different for me, obviously. Uh, well, I mean, you know this. The people listening don't know this. But my dad was an independent Baptist preacher. So Harry Potter was Satan in our home. Right. So like I was, but, but family movie night, we watched Saul 
and ate curly fries. Interesting. Yes, but oh my god, if you read a Harry Potter novel or anything, you know, witchcraft, wizard, oh, like, yeah. yeah, that's devil, like Satan. <laughs> like now, you know, now I'm 30, and I mean, I experienced things like Harry Potter when I was maybe, I was probably 15 when I first I read the first book. So I was very sheltered my whole life growing up, other than horror movies, <laughs> which is so insane to me that we, you know, it's like we can't go to the movie theater to watch The Passion of the Christ because a preacher should not be seen in a movie theater. Okay. But let's let's watch Hostel. That sounds like a good thing, you know, to watch with your... Your dad and your Did mom. Did he break it down? Were there were there life lessons after the movie or? Oh no! Just, just to no. watch for entertainment value. Entertainment. It was entertainment, and I sat in the middle with the tray of curly fries, and we, we yeah, I, I mean, and then it was a lot of like LMN movies, like I did nothing really growing up as far as like. Um, Watching a lot of TV shows. Now, granted, TV Land was like that was my go-to. Uh, well, it was get, probably actually TV Land then. Yes, uh, <laughs> Get Smart was my most favorite like yeah. TV show. I absolutely loved Andy Griffith, um, things like that. You know, I was allowed to watch stuff like that, um, which is so weird. It's so weird to think about now. But then I moved out. Well, my parents get got divorced when I was probably fifteen. And so my mom and I moved back to West Virginia, and I started hanging out with my cousin a lot. And he really introduced me to, like, my love of music. So I'm a huge, like, 90s grunge rock man. That's, that's like, my, that's my music. Um, but I didn't experience this stuff while it was happening. I didn't, you know, I ended up latching on to it 10 or 15 years maybe after it was popular so I'm still decades behind <laughs> now I'm the exact opposite I'm a huge D&D nerd um, I love music going to concerts well we get to go to our first concert in like three years in August and I'm super excited um, but my thing is reading books I'm a huge book nerd I like reading <laughs> There was a girl that worked with us. I won't say her name just because. But she used to mention that we're librarians. Yes, we're librarians. And and we are inside of our library right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're inside a bunker. We're in a bunker in our a library. In the library. Light air. Yeah. There's not a lot of air in here. It's, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little stuffy in here, but... Um. We're making it. We're making um, Well, anyway, so, you know, she would tell me that she would keep a book in every room in her house. And then whenever she was in that room, you know, she would read what was ever on her coffee table. Okay. And I don't know, probably in the bathroom in the kitchen. We didn't get that far. Um, but I thought the idea was ridiculous. I was like, oh, that's insanity. I'm like, how in the world can you follow like three or four storylines at one time? That's too much for me. And then I started doing it. Um, and now I'm reading an ebook, a physical copy of a book, and listening to an audiobook. Um, and I found by doing it through different uh, formats, or you know, consuming it through different formats, that I'm actually able to retain the differences in the stories. So yeah, I mean, honestly, like I'm a late bloomer. So now I'm just trying to catch up on like you know Jared Leto and. I, I have seen one – well, I've seen a few Nicolas Cage movies. And the one movie that I remember – and I, I, don't, I don't even know what the name of it was. 
the premise is he was like in jail and the whole movie is him trying to navigate through the city. I think it's like New York City to get his wife and kid to get them on a plane. Uh, yeah, that one doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. Um, Josh, you're supposed to know this. <laughs> I know. You know, the, the, here's, here's the problem. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just put it out there. Is that um, Nick Cage is a very, very odd, insanely awesome, gifted man. Uh, he he just chooses to do things just because uh, he is the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, so he really got his start doing bit parts in Coppola movies. Uh, one of which that really got him uh, uh, acclaim, I guess, is is uh, Peggy Sue got married because he for no reason whatsoever started talking like this. It didn't make any sense. He just he and in the interviews he's like I thought my character would have a very nasally high voice, and it it pissed off some, it enthralled the rest. So that's kind of how it goes. Uh, there's a movie just for instance. There's a movie out there called Color Out of Space. It's based on an H.P. Lovecraft story. So it is god awful horrifying. It is, it is a disturbing. Film. The young, the main actor in that movie, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, which I'm sorry, sir, but uh, he did an interview where he was like, I, you know, I, I got to work in the cage and I asked him, Nick, why did you decide to do this film? And Nick Cage said to him in all seriousness, I just felt like doing a family film. <laughs> A and family so, film? Yeah, so you just have to take that and be like, well, that's just who he is. It's how he operates. And uh, I, for one, am just uh, – there's there's a, a moment in every single Nick Cage film, no matter how small. It could be seconds. It could be minutes. It could be longer where he just – he has a Nick Cage moment where it, it, he, essentially he loses his damn mind. <laughs> he just loses it. <laughs> And that, and every single one has one. And you gotta wait. Sometimes you gotta wait for it. But somewhere in that movie, every movie, you'll see it. It'll just be a moment where he just goes off. That's an cage moment. And that's to me. That's why I watch the movie. I wait for these moments. Uh, you know, all of his movies aren't good. You know, he's got so many. Really, uh, he does anything and everything. I mean, it, really, if you pick a genre of movie, there, Nick Cage has a film within that genre. It, it's just how it is. And there are many, many. It, it, you know, I, I came to the point where I was looking through stuff like Tubi and Hulu and just, you know, those uh, uh, Pluto, the, the ones that just have the odd collection assortment of movies, you know. Mm -hmm. And he he has so so many, and I I haven't seen them all. So I'm not I I have not seen every Nick Cage movie. I'm not a, an expert. I just I know what I love, and uh, I I love Nick Cage. He's he's nuts, and uh, in a, in a different way than Jared Leto. I mean Jared Leto. I don't think I, I won't say nuts, but his method acting, I think, goes to an extreme that only he understands. And, you know, it, I, was, I was reading about Morbius. Uh, that's what the directors in the movie were saying. Like, you know, this is something that Jared understands. And if he wants to walk to the bathroom in crutches, we support that. Because <laughs> some, you know, it's like, what are you going to say? You're going to say, oh, man, that guy held us up. You can't say that. So it's like he gets something and he's on a different level. And you, as, a, as a fan, you just have to read that interview and be like, well, I guess so. I, I guess he just... <laughs> See something that we don't and just let it be, you know? Just 
it it kind of rem- well, I mean, Jared Leto is not Heath Ledger by <laughs> by any measure, but. I remember right after Heath Ledger died, this interview came out, and I can't remember who did the interview, but um, he's talking about how taking on the roles of, like, these characters, like, he lived them 24 hours a day at home. Like, so when he was the Joker, for instance, like, that became his mentality. And then, you know, he argued that that, like, over time changed him as a person just in general. Which, by the way, I did not care for Jared Leto as the Joker. <laughs> I don't think anyone did. No. My favorite is Heath Ledger. I thought, you know, for The Dark Knight, like, Heath Ledger was, Heath Ledger was a, good, a good Joker. But I'm also a classic Batman fan, so I like the cheesy, was it 1960s TV Land special with... Uh, yeah, the Batman the movie, as I think is what they called it, where they got all the villains together. Well, it wasn't the movie. It was oh, the TV oh, land, okay. like TV show. Okay. Yeah. My mom and I watched that and The Incredible Hulk. The Yeah, yeah. like these 1970 versions where they, like all the little words like pow, wham, they're in like those bubbles yeah. up on the screen. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was my – that was really uh, my main fault with Hulk is that Ang Lee tried to create a movie that was – based on a comic book. So you would be watching the movie and out of nowhere, instead of transitioning to the next scene, it would it would turn in it would turn into ink and color and he would transition to a comic book page. Mm-hmm. And that became very absurd very quickly. I mean there's a scene in the movie where a guy gets blown up, right? Like from mm-hmm. behind. And he flies at you and stops. It transitions in the comic book, and he just spins away. He spins out of this, out of the frame, with a whoop. It's just, it's a, it's like, what just happened here? What, what is this? And I, I understand, I guess, to a point, what he was trying to do, and that's fine. But as a, as a, just someone in the audience, just watching the movie, it, it's, it looks absurd. Uh, the fact that the fact it just the Hulk does all these things that are never explained, like jumping really far and really high, mm-hmm. and like all the bullets bouncing off him and stuff. Like in the Incredible Hulk, the the Edward Norton movie, like you, it, it's all explained. But there's also like you you see more his pain in trying to deal with this situation. In Hulk, you don't get you don't get that. He just he be, he you know through a series of events he becomes the Hulk, but. It's just it, absurdity follows. I mean, seriously, absurdity just follows. And it's only broken up by these moments of levity where he is calmed by uh, Betty Ross, who is mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer Connelly. So he has these uh, scenes where it's, all it is is it's just a tight on Jennifer Connelly's face and her just giving him like this, uh, this you know, this motherly almost assuring like it's going to be okay look she doesn't say anything she just like like a there there look you know that really for me was the only thing worth watching the movie for I, I've always loved her since the 80s I mean she was in you know Labyrinth for everybody who's uh, paying attention yeah. uh, and that was it I mean those moments of just that tight on her face where it's just like alright I can breathe Everything's going to be okay. And then, bam, absurdity happens. Like, I mean, really, Nick Nolte is the villain, okay? <laughs> Just think of, think of all the things that you've seen Nick Nolte do, and then imagine him as the bad guy in a Marvel film. There you go. That's all. That's all you need. 
That's the Hulk. <laughs> in a nutshell. That's Hulk, yeah. That's Hulk. And it's just Hulk. It's not the Hulk. No, it's Hulk. Yeah. Yes. I... I'm a I'm a I'm a pretty big like Marvel. Okay, so I'm I need to like get this out right in the beginning. I do not read comic books. Okay, I read some graphic novels, and I'm trying to learn. I mean, you know, we work in a library. I feel so stupid sometimes when people ask me about like you know. Well, I'm looking for like this run of this. I'm like, well, I I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my partner is very, very into, like, comics and anime, and um, and I just am very, like, dumb to it because I know it's not anything that I ever really, like, honestly, it never interested me. But I have started reading, like, I just finished all of the Sandman. Um, I loved those. Uh, I read Watchmen as the graphic novel. Yeah. Loved that. Um, so I'm trying. I'm trying. I just have never been like it's it's hard for me to retain pictures and words, if that makes sense. So, like, yeah. you know, if, if I'm reading a book or I'm listening to a book, like that's one thing uh, or if I'm watching a movie. But trying to, like, figure out what's happening in the picture while I'm reading this text and I feel like it's like a multitask thing I can't do, <laughs> um, which upsets me because I feel like from this podcast, I'm going to be more apt to, like, pick up yeah. a comic book and... I mean, there's all kinds at my house, um, and I and, and I feel like I'm going to need to if, if I want to be a part of this and respond. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I went to, to WVU, uh, and I, I majored in creative writing, or, or uh, English with a concentration in creative writing. And I only wanted to be a writer. I wanted, I wanted to write words, and that was it. And I, I, I never had an artistic bone in my body. I didn't, I, never, I didn't paint or draw or do anything like that. And then I developed a, a seizure disorder for... A number of uh, things happened, and I had a, a grand mal seizure, which is like the worst you could ever have. And I fell down a flight of stairs. And I was in the hospital. It was it was just the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And I can't explain this at all, uh, other than maybe something in my brain turned on. But when I got out of the hospital, everything I saw was color. I, I could see every shade of color in everything in front of me. Uh, and I'd never seen that before, ever. I'd never, I, it, it had never occurred to me that the, the, the incredible shades of blue that are in the, the paneling on these walls in our bunker here. But at, I woke up from that seizure. I, I left the hospital and it was just brilliant, vivid color. But I also just understood something in my brain just got it. I I, I knew I just I knew where the pieces fit, you know. Yeah. And it and I don't understand it any more than anyone else. I mean, the I do write on occasion, but that left me. All I wanted to do was paint. I wanted to draw. I wanted to see color. I wanted I I I wanted to put it all together. I wanted to make sense of it, you know. And from then on, it's been, that's how it's been. So the irony is that I I can't read now and put it together. But if I read a graphic novel, seeing the color and the panels and, and the action, I understand that completely. It, it, it's odd. I mean, I've been reading, uh, we're gonna get into it in a minute here, but I've been reading <laughs> Peter Pan. I've been reading the actual novel. And, you know, it it, it reads, it's fairly quick, mm -hmm. the, the way it reads. I mean, it, it, it we're gonna, <laughs> it's, Disturbing, but uh, the, it's, it, it's written as 
a, a fantasy, a child, a, a childish fairy tale. So you can read it fairly quickly and and understand it, grasp it. You know. Um, so I've been reading that, and I got I've you know, I read it when I was much younger. I was nineteen. I read it for the same reason Shelby did, <laughs> to cleanse my mind of a situation I was in that night. I was working at Disney and we, you know, when you, interns all live in the same housing complex. So you all know each other and you all get together and you kind of hang out. <laughs> so I was with some people that I worked with and we were all in this apartment and they had friends over and they were watching the animated film Anastasia. And and it and I I was you know as a as a as an animated film it's it's okay I mean I'm not gonna get into that but there was a guy there who just kept standing up and saying oh, oh such a beautiful story it, and it's all true did you know it's true it's such a beautiful story he she found her her grandmother found her and it's so beautiful that they got together and oh. they, they were able to have a family and I listened to this guy for. A minute and a half before I lost my shit. I just, I lost it. And I was like, all right, sir, okay. And again, this is prior to having internet and a phone, so I'm not looking anything up. I just read a lot of books, as I do, and so I know things, okay? So I let this dude have it. Like, did you know what actually happened to them? They were slaughtered, sir. They were slaughtered. They were, all of them, her, her sister, her mother, her father, her brother, they were just gunned down and thrown into a, a shallow grave. And he just, I mean, I, I went into it, man, uh, the, the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution. I, I let him have it. I, I went all there. And I'm like, you really want to get into it, man? You really want to get into it? You want to know what happened? You know, they didn't find her brother's body. You want to know why? Because they threw him into another grave. Okay? And, and it, it, it was just, you could see that everything just went out of this room and they were all looking at me. And it was it was almost like a Monty Python sketch, wherein this guy, he they were all looking at me. He just, without looking, just raised his hand, turned off the TV, put the clicker back on the table, and I was like, "That's it. I I have to leave because I've, <laughs> I've destroyed <laughs> I've destroyed a jolly evening for this fellow here." So I went back to my room, and again, I had all these books on my bookshelf, and I'm just like, "I'm gonna take something, anything, and just like cleanse my mind." And so I had Peter Pan, and I, I hadn't read it prior to that moment. My, my, my mom had been sending me books and stuff. So I did. I, I thought, I'll cleanse my mind by reading this book, and it'll make me feel better. And, you know, the answer to that question is no. <laughs> no. Anyone out there, anyone who's like, you know what, I'm going to read Peter Pan, or I'm going to read it to my kids, or whatever, my answer to you is no, because it will hurt. It will hurt. I, I <laughs> see. I, I walked into this conversation unknowingly uh, last week when I just I came into work, and because we're librarians, this happens to us all the time, where we will walk in, and someone will be having a conversation. Because if you ever go to your library and you see the posters on the wall about like book club discussions. Those are created by your librarians. The librarians are the ones who pick those books and read them and discuss them. Uh, it's no, there isn't a big boss who comes down from on high and says, this is what we're going to do for our classes for the month. I mean, the librarians find a book and they find a theme and they devise these classes or these discussions around the book and theme. So 
it's not uncommon for us to, to walk into work and to be thrown into a conversation about a new release or um, a book in the, in, in the news or in the media uh, because someone somewhere who we're working with at the time is probably devising a class based on this thing. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, I came into work and I walked into the following discussion. Oh, about Peter Pan. Okay, so Peter Pan's always been, it's been like my favorite Disney movie besides Beauty and the Beast. Okay, I I really did like Beauty and the Beast. Um, You know, we're going to have to cover Beauty and the Beast at some point. I I also, I'm still a student at WVU. Sorry about that. Oh, no, that's okay. I mean, you know, six years, I think. I'm, I'm now a professional uh, bachelor student. <laughs> but, you know, when I first started, um, long story short, I wanted to be a political journalist. That's how I ended up with this equipment. And then from working in the library, I realized, like, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, I love this. Um, so I changed my focus. And now I'm a communications major with a minor in women's gender studies um, with the goal to be a social service librarian and work with marginalized groups and homeless. But, you know, there's a lot of seriousness to our job. But then at the same time, there's a lot of cool stuff. Like the fact that I'm surrounded by like books all day long. I mean, I work in the truck, in a truck, (laughs) but I'm surrounded by books in a truck all day long. (laughs) So that might seem weird. But I don't know, like, it's just, it's a really cool place to be. And it it changed what I wanted to do in my life. So, even though I'm like a really, you know, I'm an avid reader, I'm a huge, I have to put this out there too, I'm a huge like Scooby-Doo fan, and I don't know why in the world I I just didn't put on a Scooby-Doo cartoon for what I'm about ready to talk about. So, I recently started reading Stephen King. Everybody always says to me, like, oh, my God, you've got to read Stephen King. And I'm like, no, I can't. Like, everyone loves him. I'm going to hate him. <laughs> I'm just trying to pretend that I'm cool and I'm really not. I've read a few of his novels. Have I, you? I, I was never a fan, really. Oh. Uh, I read – I remember reading – because at the time uh, there was a show, a TV show about it, but um, the, the Dead Zone. Um, I, so I read The Dead Zone. And that kind of got me into reading the, the cl- more classics like the Carrie and Christine, like those – so I, I, honestly, I can I'm, I can say I've never read a later novel. Um, I only know you know whatever stories have been adapted to you know film or whatever. But I read some of the earlier stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, and what I, all I have to say about Stephen King, and again, I I could be wrong about this because I haven't read these later uh, works. But I thought like sort of not really poorly written, but uh, plainly written. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there it wasn't very. Um, very deep. <laughs> there, were, there weren't a lot of deep ideas. Uh, personally, I, I prefer like more poetic prose. That's just how I am. Uh, so, but but I but even then, even like with the Dead Zone, like his ideas were just like beyond, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was <clears throat> crazy. And that that's one of the things I love about Joe Hill, his son, is that Joe Hill I think encapsulates what I've always been looking for in that Stephen King ideas, but written and done so beautifully. I mean, his he's done graphic novels that are just uh, like Lock and Key and The Cape. I read The Cape and it was just, God, you want to talk about a, a horrifying story, like there you go, The Cape is just nuts. 
So I've read my share of a you know, little bit of King early days, but I don't know about I don't know about this this story what you've been reading. Yeah. So I don't like later King too much. I read eleven twenty two sixty three by far probably one of my favorite books because I'm also um, infatuated with the assassination of J- assassination of JFK. I can't get him out of my mouth. But I, the first book I read was Firestarter because I I had read somewhere that it was Stranger Things was loosely based off of Firestarter. And then I didn't, after that, I didn't read Stephen King for like six or eight months because I didn't really like the book. <laughs> and then I went back and I read The Shining because I watched The Shining. Yeah. And then I fell down this path of like, I love Stephen King for, he has this ability for me at least. He puts me in this very, like, I feel comfortable. I can put myself in his story. Like, you know, he talks about Maine a lot and um, these New England states. And I really love that because there's something like creepy. There's something creepy about New England states to me. Which I want to go. I don't know, but I think Stephen King's done that to me. <laughs> he's he's made me, you know, feel that way about it. So now I have, you know, Salem's Lot. I've I've not read Carrie. I'm not interested in Carrie. I I pick and choose. Like you know, I really read like the the uh, book cover <laughs> on the back, and I'm like, yeah, is this? I don't know. So, anyways, I decided that I was going to read Desperation. One of our fellow librarian friends told me that I should read it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. It's a really big book. I love big books. So right off the bat, I knew that I could kind of relate to one of the main characters. His name's David, and he's like 13 years old. And out of the blue, he ends up having this religious experience because his friend gets hit by a car and he's like dying. He's on life support. He's in the hospital and David doesn't know how to pray and just decides he's going to try to like pray for his friend. And then all of a sudden, you know, he prays for his friend. His friend lives. And now David has direct communication with God. Okay. So there's a spiritual element to this. And then you have this cop uh, named Collie, he like lives in this town called Desperation in Nevada, and he's been taken over by like this alien, Indian kind of like voodoo, <laughs> Satan, necessarily. Okay, so this 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 Collie, um, he can speak and control like wolves, birds, spiders, like really creepy things. But the the whole idea, how he gets people to this town is like he does these like random stops on Route 50. How creepy is that? Because I live like five miles from Route 50 and he will stop them and like pull them over something ridiculous and then plant drugs in their car so that he can abduct them and take them back to desperation and lock them in cells. Interesting. It's it's so it it's not the idea like for Stephen King adds he definitely adds like a not a fantasy element and and I wouldn't even consider him a horror writer Stephen King does not consider himself a writer of horror he's psychological you know thriller but there's something there I don't know there's something about this book that I was like oh God this could happen. To someone, yeah. realistically, like you, you could be in Maine, and <laughs> you could just be driving yeah. down. Oh, no, well, no, not in Maine. They're yeah. in Nevada. This, this is like Anywhere, an hour. Really, I mean, yeah. Um, so, 
I go on Hoopla. If none of you know what Hoopla is, you need to check with your local library. Hoopla and Libby, they're two really great apps. Uh, they give you access to a large collection of like ebooks, audiobooks, um, graphic novels, comics. Yeah. And free with a library card if you. Yes. Any, any library, really. I mean. Yes, if any, yeah, I would definitely check with your library. It's an awesome way to to get free resources, you know, and to read. So I go on there and I'm like, you know what? I need to take my mind off of this, like, because this book had me wired. And I, you know, I was, I couldn't like sleep. And I'm like, okay, I'm. I'm I was gonna... last night. <laughs> well, the, the, this next book that I started in tandem had me wired, and I couldn't sleep. So I decided to read J.M. Barry's. Peter Pan and listen to it because Jim Dale does the narration. He's oh. my favorite narrator. That sounds nice. Yes, Jim Jim Dale doing the voice of Tink and Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah. And then I question my respect for this guy, like as a narrator after I finished the book. I'm like, who how how could he read this? And like <laughs> I I okay. Money wasn't involved. <laughs> say that right out front there. Yeah, the we're we are asking you to do this and then please keep your mouth shut about any ideas you have about it. Because this is insanity. The first thing that I noticed about this, and and I didn't think about it as a kid, like when you watch the Peter Pan movie or whatever, you don't see, you know, these things. And it's like, oh, Peter Pan likes to abduct children out of their bedroom windows, leaving their parents. Like, you don't hear about these parents. Let me just say from the first you, you hear about them in the first couple chapters and then you don't hear about them again until the last couple paragraphs of the last chapter. Well, what were they not afraid? Were they not searching for these children yeah. who've been abducted? But the mother knows Peter Pan. The mother has this weird like encounter well, when he loses his shadow. See, that's the, that's the thing that I, I picked up on. Uh, it, it, you know, you can... Uh, see, I, I, what, I'm going to say this up front. Everything that I'm going to say is, is taken from the text of uh, Wendy, uh, Peter and Wendy. Um, I believe it's the same book. It's just it, under different titles. But the first book that he wrote with Peter Pan as a character was Peter and Wendy. And so everything I'm saying is comes from the text. Uh, like, so if you're thinking, oh, he's just reading between the lines, that's not happening here. Even before Peter shows up, the, the event of Peter taking Wendy, John, and Michael is referred to as that fatal Friday. Or, or it's Nana is barking outside and uh, Michael says, you know, is, is she scared, you know, or is she angry because George, their father, puts Nana outside. And Wendy says, no, no, that's Nana's warning bark. She's warning us of danger. That's, and, you know, that's, that's, this is before Peter shows up. And that very night, Mrs. Darling is uh, written as having a, just a chill comes over her and she says, I shouldn't go out tonight. And yet she still does. So even before he arrives in any sense, the event is referred to in a very sinister way. You know, it's very dark. Uh, so it's not, it's not us saying, hey, he's a bad guy. J.M. Barry writes it that way. From the beginning, he writes it that way. So another thing, what I, I kind of pick up what you're you're saying here, and I kind of thought about this, is that every time Peter doesn't appear to Wendy, and he doesn't appear to Wendy's daughter Jane, he appears to their mothers. Mm-hmm. Peter first appears to Mrs. Darling and scares her so much that she screams, which causes him to jump out the window, and Nana slams the window behind him, cutting off his shadow. Mm-hmm. That's it, you know that gives way to Wendy sewing it back on. 
But later on, at the end of the book, when he goes to Wendy as a, she's a mother, she's an old woman, the same thing happens. He appears to her first. And she eventually tells him, because it's, it's dark in the room, like, Peter, you don't want to turn the light on because I'm old. Like, I promised I wouldn't grow old, but I am. And so only after she turns on the light does Peter notice in the bed her daughter is sleeping there. And as soon as he does, he forgets all about Wendy and goes directly to Jane. Mm -hmm. And he starts crying. And the only thing that makes him stop crying is Jane. Jane wakes up. And Peter, it's, it's stated as Peter realizes then that he doesn't need Wendy. He now has Jane. And the book ends, I, mean, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but no, the book ends just by saying very nonchalantly that, you know, he had Jane for a while, but then Jane grew into an ordinary woman, and then he had Jane's daughter, Margaret. And it goes on and on. It says it goes on and on. So presumably, as long as there's a woman in the Darling household, he will take her. <laughs> now, and, you know, and the thing is, when he, like, when he takes Jane, Wendy runs over to her and says, no, no, like telling her not to go because she she knows what's about to happen. But at the same time, I think she can't stop it because each time, each each time he, he, he takes somebody, each time he takes a woman, anyway, a female character, I'm getting all mixed up here, <laughs> but like in the, be okay, in the beginning, he takes Wendy, John, and Michael, we all know that, we, that's mm -hmm. the story. But before that happens, the, the the narrator who it's 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 a we, it's, it's a we, it's yes. a we that switches to an I, out of nowhere, and it also switches from past tense to future tense to past tense, just at random. So before Peter shows up, it cuts to future tense where, it, they're describing how Mr. and Mrs. Darling, are will sit up at night and blame themselves for what happened to their children. Mm -hmm. And each time George goes to say something bad about Peter, it says that Mrs. Darling refrains. Something in her refrains from talking bad about Peter. And the same thing happens with Wendy and Jane in that they are kind of aware that he's mischievous and that they shouldn't go with him. But as soon as he starts talking to them, it says that he speaks to them in a way they've always wanted a boy to speak to them. So I always had this feeling that he was like the the male siren, right? Like yes. he, he has yeah. a way of speaking to them where he doesn't have to say much. He just says their names but that's enough for them to follow him to Neverland, you know? It made me, I was thinking about this last night only because it, it's very vague. The thing is, this this book, a lot of it is very vague. The, the, the Really, when you get the little pieces, little nuggets of Peter's character, they're in toss-away lines. <laughs> they're at the, at the end of the page. It's just in a, in a paragraph. And you're like, wait a second, what? But then it, it just immediately jumps back into the action. So you know what you read, you know yes. that it's bad, but no one is acknowledging it. No one, you know. And so I was thinking about this in that they don't tell you how old he is. They don't tell you how long he's been taking children to refill the Lost Boy, their ranks, you know. But Mrs. Darling says in the beginning that she first hears about Peter from Wendy, and it makes her think of when she was a child— stories about a boy named Peter Pan who would take children. So was Mrs. Darling Wendy before Wendy? 
Did he take her and she just forgot about it? Because later the same ha- thing happens to yeah. Wendy. She just forgets. So was did he? It, has he been going to this house forever? Uh, we don't. We don't know. There, it never. It's never stated how long or or when or why. The only thing you get about Peter is what he tells them, and he tells Wendy that he left home because he didn't want to grow up. But you don't know any circumstances. The only no. the only time you ever get any of that is like maybe in Peter Pan or Hook. Hook kind of gets mm-hmm. into more of his backstory, but he just flies in and takes their children. And it's 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 very alarming, but it's also very heartbreaking in that you know even when Wendy is with him, she is infatuated with him. Mm-hmm. She loves Peter. Even in the moments where he does horrifying things, she catches herself and she knows that he's doing them, but she forgets or he starts talking to her and she's like, oh, well, oh, well. Like uh, when they're flying, uh, Michael almost drops out of the sky and she screams at him, please, please save him. And he blows it off. And only at the very last second does he dive down and save Michael. Not because he has an affinity for saving a human life, but because he knows that if he lets Michael die, their fun is over. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they would leave, so he would have no one to play with. So he saves Michael, uh, much with like the Lost Boys. He puts them in the same kind of danger. It only pulls them out when he feels like my fun might end here. Right. You know. But the whole time, Wendy kind of knows this, and yet she sort of ignores it. She sort of she lets it go, and then later on. She's a mother, and Jane does the same thing. She, Wendy sort of forgets all about Peter until Jane is like, no, 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 you remember. Remember he, you know, he made you fly? Yes, and she's like, yes. oh, yes, yes. Uh, so there's this uh, idea that if, if not you know, the, the Neverland being a dreamscape, then everything that happens there is just it, – it, it's, it's in its own little bubble and that everything outside of it kind of moves on. I mean – you don't know how long the darlings have been waiting up, blaming themselves for losing their children. You don't know how much time passes. The only hints you get are when, you know, they're talking about being in Neverland and it'll say, you know, for weeks, Wendy was, you know, basically mm-hmm. in, in underground being their mother. So, you know, and then it'll say, you know, for weeks. So you can kind of put it together how much time, but there's no measure of that. So they could have been gone for years. We don't know. I mean, they, show up, they show up at the end. You know, they, they do come home. You know, it's all right. But there's no description of how old they are or how long they've been gone. So they very well could have been gone for, for years. And the, these parents, yeah, would be yeah. sitting up just waiting for them to show up and they don't you know and it it, it makes me think of there's a uh, in Peter Capaldi's time as Doctor Who uh, Maisie Williams of Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. she played Arya Stark she is in the later season of of his run as a character called Me and she dies as a girl and the doctor brings her back to life and then he leaves she is brought back to life but she doesn't age past that point she is i guess maybe 12 or 13 i mean it's kind of hard to say but her body stays the same she will always heal she will always live but she can't move past that point so they address this in physiological terms how much can your brain process Mm -hmm. at that point your life even if and she it's shown she's shown later with like just 
stacks and stacks of notebooks where she's written down her life over thousands of years because her brain can't hold thousands and thousands of years of information. (laughs) Yeah. So when you think of that, it makes me wonder, like, you know, maybe Peter has just been in Neverland for so long that he's reached this point where his brain can't process all of this time. You know, it can't mm-hmm. process anything. So it, it really, he will lose things in seconds. When they're, when they're flying to Neverland, almost immediately, and that's the thing, I was, we were talking about the fairy dust being, you know, like <laughs> some kind of... something in the fairy dust. Yeah, because immediately it states that John doesn't know if they've been flying for nights or for days. So from the beginning, when they leave, it starts to play with them. Like, they start to forget what's going on. Wendy later says that uh, she can remember her parents, but it scares her that John remembers them as people they once knew, and Michael only knows her as his mother. Yes. You know? Yeah. So they forget. I mean, Peter himself forgets so much that, I mean, and really, this is just just on the flight to... Neverland. Just getting there. He, he yeah. will disappear. And when he reappears, he has had an adventure. He's so fast that he can fly away and come back. He's had an adventure, but he forgets who Wendy is. And Wendy says to him, Peter, Peter, my, I'm Wendy. My name is Wendy. And he says, oh, yeah. Whenever you forget or, or whenever I forget who you are, just say, Peter, I'm Wendy, and I'll remember you. Throughout the book, she says it over and over again. Like, I don't know if he'll remember us. You know, and in, yeah. in the end, he doesn't. Um, spoiler alert! In the end, yeah. he doesn't remember a thing about her. She, she has or to say tank. it over and over. Yeah, uh, at the end, you know, she, as an adult woman, sees this boy that she once loved, and the first thing she wants to do is reminisce with him. And so she starts saying, like, "Do you remember Captain Hook? And you saved our lives." And he says, "Who's Captain Hook?" And she says, "You know, he's the the pirate that you saved us from." And he says, "I don't remember them after I killed them." That's his line. I don't remember them after I killed them. Yes. So he has no idea. And when she brings up Tink, uh, the, the next time he comes, she brings up Tink, and he's like, "Who's Tinkerbell?" And he says, "There's so many, it doesn't matter. Like, there's so many fairies, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter." So these. Memories that have, I mean, she, it doesn't, it really, even then, it, she says, what, never so much more than 20. So you can yes. kind of imagine that she's at least 30, 40 years old. You know, you don't really know. Yes. But to her, this is like her, this is the greatest adventure of her life. Even as an old woman, mm-hmm. she holds on to these memories of this boy and he could care less. It just doesn't matter. It's <laughs> no. out of his mind. No, he doesn't And care. as soon as he sees Jane, it's like, I can, now I have a mother again. And he just replaces them over and over and over again. Presumably, as they come, you know, every daughter they, that happens comes in the family, he will take her. He only takes them because at this at the point he arrives, he needs someone to do spring cleaning for him. Yes, seriously, like uh, the, the, this is the, the really disturbing thing is that at the end, you know, uh, it, it follows very much like the Disney film. They bring the lost boys back to the darling home, and the darlings adopt the six lost boys. And as Peter leaves, this is how much of a douche Peter is. Peter doesn't say goodbye. He doesn't say a word to any of them. He brushes by the window in hopes that Wendy will come out and talk to him because he only cares about himself. Yes. So he doesn't even say that. He just brushes the window. And it's Mrs. Darling who comes out to... Wendy goes to meet him, but Mrs. Darling goes out there too. And she grabs him and she says, I'll adopt you too. You can stay, you can live with us. You know, you don't have to leave. 
And being the cocky little boy he is, he's just like, you know, am I going to have to go to school? Yeah. So I'm going to have to have an office job and become a man one day. Yep. Nope. Not for me. Like he just yells out, <laughs> nope, and just and flies away. And Wendy is able to convince him, like, wait, mother, what if I just go with Peter when he needs spring cleaning? And that's what sets up this, I guess, this usage loop forever. Of women yeah. Like where, where he just he comes to her whenever he feels like it, usually for spring cleaning, and he'll <laughs> take her away. And the last thing he says to her that she remembers is wait for me, leave your window open and wait for me and I'll come back for you. And he never does. Like, that's how much of a douche he is, you know? He did, Yeah, because in the book it portrays them as, as him, you know, forgetting, right? Like, so he's yeah. so forgetful. <laughs> but the, I think the thing that, like, that startled me about the ending of the book was, so he forgot, he comes back the first year, like after, you know, Wendy and George and Michael have returned home. <laughs> Um, and all the boys in adulthood have forgot about him, forgot about, like, Peter's existence and that any of this has happened. They forgot how to fly. Yeah, they forgot how to fly. They ran out of that crazy pixie dust. Probably, and my, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, here in a second, my favorite part of the book, I, I really, yeah. I can't wait to talk about that. Um, it's only when he need. it's like the, the idea is only when I need you. And when Jane... Goes back with him to Neverland for her week of spring cleaning. The entire time, she is telling him stories about himself. He tells her, "I want to hear stories about yes. myself." He he's so full of like his character, who he is, that he doesn't care. I mean, the point when I really like realized, like, oh, this he's like a like an egotistical little like maniac who murders about to be adults like really yeah yeah he murders pirates and lost boys alike indiscriminately yeah yeah he he has no and it it it, you know the the see the text states all of this for for you it it states very clearly that peter does not distinguish reality from fantasy the the lost boys do to an extent but Mm -hmm. peter does not so he he even goes to the extremes of of not feeding them because yes. and and it's and even that's not very clear is is he not feeding them because he's being vindictive is he not feeding them because he sees imaginary food where they do not uh, it does say that sometimes he'll be playing and he sees that it's imaginary and they know that it's not <laughs> and, uh-huh. and if they ever argue with him he wraps their knuckles mm-hmm. so they've learned not to argue with peter especially when it comes to food but it also states that, especially uh, when he's taking the kids to Neverland, his way of acquiring food is to snatch it from the mouths of birds. So yes. he, he only, and, and, you know, and, and it's, they don't, uh, he honestly does not get into what the food is like on Neverland. So you don't know if he's maybe finding other stuff to feed them. But the only thing you get is that he has been taking the food that he finds from Mouths of birds as he's flying and he takes it out of their mouths. And Wendy says at one point, we were able to do this on our 20th try. So that, that's another indication of how long this has been going. Like you, you have no idea how long it even takes him to get to Neverland. But if, she, if, if the kids are trying 20, 20 some times to, to get food for themselves, you, you know, it's kind of, you get the indication that it's, this is going on for a long time. Well, yeah. Well, there's a the there's a part like the startling part for me is what I realized like oh Peter's like ruthless because they each of them have a home like in a tree right so yeah. 
these kids had to be getting food from somewhere because one of them was so large that Peter had to cut him down. Yeah. What does that mean? Did he just like, you know, take a knife and like, yeah. Yeah, and then did, I mean, this is this child not hurt this lot? Like yeah. what? How, how, like, I just, that was the part where I'm like, okay, now this is getting kind of weird. And then it goes from that to, like, they build, the Lost Boys, you know, build Wendy a home. And then it becomes this weird, like, Peter's not stated as the dad. But then there becomes this, like, weird relationship of, like, there's mother and then there's Peter. Yes. And he's kind of like the the father figure. When I I had to rethink about, like, going back to read Desperation, I'm like, you yeah, know, I think this is a little this is a little too much for me <laughs> to take in because after the Lost Boys build Wendy a home, they go back into their tree. The one poor, I can't remember his name. He was, you know, the one that they cut down. He's probably bleeding as he's trying yeah. to get back in his tree. But Peter, like, keeps watch over the house they, they built for Wendy. And he's asleep. And the ending of this chapter is just a group of unsteady fairies stumble over Peter on their way back from a late night orgy. Now, okay, orgy is orgy. I don't care when Jim Barry or like J.M. Barry wrote this book. So you have these, I don't even know what to call them, this like sex crazed fairies. And then you have Tinkerbell, who's like the complete opposite of them. Like you never hear about her. I mean, there's a couple places, but you never really hear about her like being with the other fairies. She's yeah. always with she Peter. She's infatuated with Peter. She's infatuated with Peter, and Peter knows it, and he's infatuated with Wendy. So therefore, he forces Tink, the foul-mouthed Tink, which we don't get to hear what yeah. she says. I wish we would have, but who knows? Well, I mean, silly ass. She says. She says silly ass. She says silly ass. But I feel like there's, like, she hates Wendy. She even tries to take Wendy to her death when... Tries to kill her. Tries to kill her. In the in the cartoon, she she gets her shot at, and she actually gets hit. Yes. She gets hit in the chest, but Peter had given her a kiss, which to him was the button of an acorn, and Wendy put it on a chain around her neck, and so the arrow hit that acorn, so she was okay. But, yeah, Tink, the first chance she gets... She says, you got to kill the Wendy bird. And she, so the lost boys are like, all right. And they just shoot at her. But, and, you know, and uh, <laughs> that's the thing is, is that it's really hard to, does Peter have any, any affection for Wendy whatsoever? Uh, it's hard to judge. Because, or anyone. Or anyone, really, yeah. anyone. Because he does go back for her over and over again and subsequently her family. But it does seem like he only does it to have a, a mother, to have someone tell him stories, to have someone clean up after him. The whole time, I mean, there, there's so much There's so much in the book about Wendy just aching for him, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the thing she says to him, the way it's described, I mean, she really does love this boy. And he could care less, man. He could care less. It just does not matter. And it's very ambiguous because, you know, when you put in, you think about the, the fact that Barry himself was abandoned by his mother uh, after it, he was uh, six years old. His brother was 14. His brother had an accident on the ice when they were skating and he fractured his skull and he died. All accounts sort of confirm that Barry was the one who accidentally knocked him. He didn't push him that mm-hmm. they know. Of. He accidentally knocked his brother 
he falls and he cracks his head and he, hits, and he dies. So his mother, just out of scorn, I, you know, I, we can only imagine what she was feeling, but she abandons him at a very young age. So he, at 37, he meets George, who is the, the brother of Peter, uh, the Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. But there are four boys, and George is the one that Barry meets, and George is five years old. So J.M. Barry is 37, and he meets this boy, and he, he very, very quickly puts himself into the family situation and becomes very protective and domineering over these boys. Their mother is sick, and it's been debated a, a lot of this, but f- from what has been gathered, she was putting them in the care of the nanny named Jenny, mm-hmm. and J.M. Barry forged the will to read Jimmy, and thus got all of the money and everything that came along with those boys. He, I guess he took care of them. I mean, it's not, it's, you can kind of infer that he did take care of them in in their way, but George died at 21. And and from what I've read, like that destroyed Barry. And then the other brothers pretty much died tragically. I mean, Peter himself committed suicide uh, by throwing himself under a train. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But his his brother did the same, his brother committed suicide by drowning. Uh, the littlest one, Nicholas, was the one who lived longest and lived a full life. And he was, he said that J.M. Barry had no, no sexuality. He, he called him innocent. He, you know, so there's this idea that maybe Barry was asexual and, mm-hmm. you know, not, you know, because your first inclination is, oh, he, you know, he's, yeah, he's, he's doing is. something to these boys. <laughs> uh, but there was no proof of that. I mean, the, the only thing you really get is anecdotal evidence from the boys themselves. And Nicholas was the only one who really said anything. I mean, Peter burned all letters, all correspondence between Barry and the boys. Peter destroyed that when he killed himself. So you kind of, you can kind of guess at maybe why, uh, you know, or at least how it affected him. But, you know, the, we don't know. It's so long ago, we don't it's know. So long. But, and, but then you have the, these, this book in which, I mean, he, uh, Wendy is mother and uh, she is female. She's fe- <laughs> she is female caretaker. I mean, and, and every woman in the book is female caretaker. It's very strange, you know? I mean, he, the way he describes George, uh, I always wondered if he named George after the boy. The you know, boy. The, you know, mm-hmm. the, George the father of the darling, you know, George mm-hmm. darling. But he describes George as, you know, as a a good man. I mean, he, when George sends Nana outside and chains her up, it says that he sat for a long time with his knuckles to his eyes, meaning he probably used crying because yeah. he didn't want to do it. So George, the character, George Darling, is a very sympathetic character, but he's also the father. He's also got to be stern and, and, and domineering. But So he does paint George, uh, George Darling in a very affectionate light, whereas... Very. I mean, Mrs. Darling, he also paints in a kind of that same light, but not. She's not brisk. Yeah. She's very. The the part where I could see like the the emotional side of George Darling was at the end when he lives in the doghouse. You know, he takes the he has them come every morning and take him inside of the doghouse to work, and it's because he promises himself, you know, that hey, I'm not going to leave this because it's my fault mm-hmm. that these kids ran away. Because of Nana, because I tie Nana yeah. up outside. And then, you know, he stays. But then at the end, there he's pretty much like, well, why didn't you ask? 
That's the only question that George Darling says to these yeah. kids is why yeah. didn't you ask? Because he uh, he he adopts all of uh, there's six lost boys by the end of the the, the book. And he does adopt them all, but they, yeah, they do. They, I think they stand at the at the bottom of the stairs and they wait because they think that he doesn't want them. And mm-hmm. it takes a few minutes, but he eventually bursts into tears and he says, "I've all, I want all of you. I want to take you all." Like he, yes. he literally breaks down and just and accepts all of them. And the first thing he does is he runs up the stairs and he to show them where they're gonna live. He's like, "We're going to the drawing room," and you know, yeah. he's, he's so excited to show them. And there is no drawing. There is no drawing room. room. <laughs> but he's so excited to just show them like you're gonna live here so he's very happy to have these boys which is a contrast to the beginning of the book where Wendy is born and uh, they have a discussion where can we keep this yes. child you know because they're fairly poor even though they have a servant and a nanny who's a dog she's a dog but, Nana. Nana. Uh, but th- there is a discussion of can can we keep this child and then once John and Michael are around and Michael even asks his mother like did you know uh, you know do you want me does no one want me and she says of course I want you I want three children and so the, both of the parents are very affectionate and accepting of their children mm-hmm. you know which makes it all more heartbreaking that Peter just takes them you know and it, that's what we, the thing is we don't know we don't know how things break down in the Neverland and it's called the Neverland which I think is interesting yes and not Neverland before Peter shows up Mrs. Darling has a dream where she sees essentially the Neverland and the a veil over the Neverland and it's torn open by Peter and on the other side she can see her children it makes you wonder was Peter imaginary and he became real because of the belief of these children or was it there all along because the only description you get is from this wee character and you don't know who that is I I always thought it was maybe fairies talking maybe yes but they say like each Neverland is different and in John's Neverland there's a lagoon and in Michael's Neverland there's there's a ship and when they get to the Neverland the first thing those boys say is Michael there's your lagoon yes John there's your ship and this angers Peter it pisses him off because they know so much about the Neverland already and he doesn't know why so it makes me think that maybe it was a dream that somehow became real and that 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 might be the scariest part in that you know like Mrs. Darling said like I as a girl I heard stories about this boy named Peter who would take children and then to have this actually happen to her you know, like it, having a, this fantasy become reality, it's, it's got to be horrifying, you know? Yeah, and he doesn't only pick on the girls, I guess, no. you know, because he's got the lost boys who mean literally nothing to him other than, you know— what what is the what what is the name of the either I'm blanking on it. There's Tootles and Nibs and Slightly and the twins. The twins. The, twi- the twins. One of the really weird parts is that they all have names except for the twins, and it's this, it's that way because it says that Peter doesn't understand what twins are. So yes. to, So to, to Peter, the twins are one person, and so the twins because and it it, it, it stated over and over and over again. Each, almost, almost each character says that they're scared of Peter. They're scared of what he'll do, right? Mm-hmm. So the twins, rather than express themselves as two individual people, they let this go because they don't want to face whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever would come to them do. because they'd have to explain to Peter, no, we're two people, and Peter doesn't understand what that means. He sees them as 
one person. Because they look alike. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you never hear anything from the twins, really. I mean, they do get into mischief, but, yeah, Peter doesn't see them. He doesn't even see them as, as individual people. They're just... They fill the ranks. Yes. And as as they die, and that's one. That's another thing. It's it, it's a throwaway line, and it just says that, uh, you know, when they become too old, that's against the rules, and Peter thins them out. That's the line, and it thins just, them out. It's yes. just in a paragraph in the middle of the page, and it immediately goes on. So you can only infer thins them out. You know what does that mean? I mean, we would. We can we we know what that means. You we know? we know. And then I mean, he, he just kills them. Well, know. okay. Let's talk about how he handles Hook. Okay, so in like many um, juvenile like fiction, and even some YA stuff that I've read, like young adult stuff, generally there's just this connection between like, the good guy and the bad guy. And if you get rid of the of the villain, then the good guy has like a loss, right? Because it's yeah. like, well, I, I live for this. I'm living to fight against this villain or and vice versa. There is none, none of that when it comes to Peter and Hook. Like, Hook is being chased by this like crocodile that yeah. Peter sets on him and, and puts a clock, a ticking clock, you know, in this yeah. crocodile's stomach. And at the end, when it comes down to like him and Peter... Peter puts his foot on Hook's chest and just they just stare at each other and he kicks him off into the lagoon for that crocodile to eat him. It's like you couldn't like there were no last words. There was no there was no exchange between the two of them other than Hook. Hook tells him like pretty much like just do it. And Peter does it in this way of it's going to be bloody and gory and it's and he doesn't care because remember as soon as Hook dies Peter forgot. Yeah, he, doesn't he doesn't care. He doesn't know. I mean that's the thing you, you know you <clears throat> You read this book, and yeah, like any other book, it's you. You, if, if you read it in the sense of Peter being the good guy, then obviously Hook's the bad guy, and right. you read it as a story of hero versus villain. But yeah, at the at the end, he doesn't remember who Hook is. He doesn't care, and you know, and the this, the the pirates are pirates. They kill as just as indiscriminately uh, when they're in the woods looking for the Lost Boys. One of the pirates brushes against Hook, and Hook just with his hook slashes him, kicks him aside. Just so. They don't care either. They're just as bloodthirsty as right, Peter. Right, right. But Hook, and this is the thing, like, the, the only thing, the only thing that drives Hook to want to take revenge on Peter is the fact that he cut off his hand, but not the fact that he cut off his hand. It's the fact that he taunts him with his hand and then feeds it to the crocodile. Yes, that, it's the crocodile. Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, they only give brief descriptions of the pirates, but Hook is described as having still retain memory of being a pirate mm -hmm. and he has class and a little bit of honor yeah. you know you don't you, you don't know the school he went through. yeah you yeah. don't know how far that goes it's also said that he is um blackbeard's busan which is like smee is his busan right. like his valet you know uh, but even Smee, like you, you, you watch you watch the Disney cartoon and you, you have this bumbling little character, but Smee has a sword he calls Johnny Corkscrew because yes. when he kills, he digs that sword into the gut as much as possible because it thrills him to do it. So he names his weapons based on how he uses them. But so so it seems like Hook was the Busan of Blackbeard. So it says in the beginning, like, you know, when he when Peter's telling the boys about Hook. You know, Hook is the one to be feared. You know, because he has, I guess, the most pomp, the most, you know, the most, uh, yes. the most uh, 
authority. Um, but yeah, they he he. If only he could just let it go. That's the thing. I think if if he let it go, he would just be another pirate, and he might live a little longer. But he just he this boy is cocky, and he insulted me, and he insulted my honor. I have to kill him. That was it. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. There wasn't this long decades feud. It was just like cut off my hand. I'm coming for you. That's it. You know. And he's only he's only got problems. Like Hook is only upset and angry when Peter's there because there's a part in the book that yeah. says like the entire island is at peace. Yes. While Peter yes. is gone. So listen, this is. I forgot about this until I just looked down at my notes, but this was, this just shows how like vindictive Peter Pan's character is. So there's a, there's a line that says, there is a saying in Neverland, every time you breathe, an adult dies. Peter got inside his tree home and intentionally breathed five breaths a second to kill as many adults as he could. So he just creates this whole environment, you know, has the Lost Boys and Hook and all of his men and then the Redskins. Then you have the Redskins and they're all at peace. There's no fighting between any of them. And then Peter comes back and sometimes he's on the side of the Lost Boys. Sometimes he switches to the Redskins. I was trying to, I've been reading this uh, on Hoopla. Hoopla, ladies and gentlemen. Hoopla. uh, Free books. I was reading this on Hoopla, and you have the you you can highlight things, and then once you highlight, you can look at a list of all your highlights. So essentially, you can build your own outline. And I'm, I'm I was reading through this, just picking out the things that I remember. And yeah, the the line is that it's one of Peter's more peculiar traits. But he's in the middle of a battle. Peter switches sides. <laughs> yes. So just whoever's for the, winning, just for the fun of it, yeah, whoever's winning, Peter will be on their side, and so he will indiscriminately kill Lost Boys because he wants to be a Redskin. And then once the Redskins are losing, he'll switch again and kill Redskins to be a Lost Boy. Uh, and it is stated that it's and see again, it's unclear. It, yeah. Is is the Neverland? fueled by Peter. Did he create it? I mean, it's, it's kind of unclear because it does say when Peter's away, the, the pirates and the Lost Boys will thumb noses at each other, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And the entire island will be at peace. But Peter hates lethargy. Mm-hmm. So as soon as Peter gets there, he stirs things up. So it, it says the what the pirates chasing the Lost Boys, Lost Boys chasing the Indians, the Indians chasing the pirates. Like, so as soon as he arrives... He creates drama because he can't bear to just be, you know? And so chaos just starts to happen. Is this and is this created from the child's imagination, right? Because that's what yeah. it makes you think of is like, you know, because, I mean, as a child, we, I, I mean... I would like to think that maybe my imagination has gotten better as I've gotten older yeah. because of my upbringing, but our minds go everywhere. Yeah. And and kids they never want to sit. They they never want to just sit and be. They want to be up and running around exactly. and and it's constant. So that makes me think that maybe Peter Pan and the Neverland comes from the subconscious of of Wendy. Yeah. And the, the, like, I, like I was saying before with Mrs. Darling having that dream, you know, that that would, I mean, the way it's written is, is exactly that. She dreams of the Neverland and a rip being torn by Peter and seeing her children through the rip. And as she wakes from that dream, Peter jumps through the window. Okay, so that's her first, yes. first time she sees him. 
So, and, you know, the, the we, the fairies, the, the voice, whoever is narrating, they tell you, you know, this is John's Neverland. This is... The thing is, it's, it's they say, like, uh, you know, when you're a child at night, your mother will go through your mind and tidy things up. Yes. Go th- and it says mind, and you can read it as room, mm-hmm. like, because it, it kind of reads like she's going through the nursery tidying things, but it says mind very specifically over and over again. She goes into the children's minds, and that's where she hears about Peter from Wendy's mind. Uh, we don't know what that means. You know, we can, I, I take it to mean that maybe she's listening to them in their sleep and they're, right, they're yes. dreaming of the Neverland and they're dreaming of Peter because when they do arrive, really, not only do they see things that are in their Neverland, according to the, the narrator, but Michael and John start to argue, like, no, your ship is over here. No, the ship burned. That leads me to believe they've been there before. You know, in their dreams, e- either in their dreams or in in actuality. And the thing is, like, as they begin to descend onto the ground, they fall asleep, because T- Peter has taught them how to sleep while flying because mm-hmm. it's easier that way. So John and Michael, as they touch ground, both fall asleep standing up. Michael immediately wakes up and says, where's Nana? Where's mother? And John says, oh, we were flying. And both of them immediately jump into the action. They forget. Michael forgets everything. So they immediately jump into to whatever is going on around them. You know, so, yeah, it, it, he doesn't explain. He really. No. He doesn't. He, it's not clearly stated. You know, it's, it's all very vague. So you, you have no choice but to fill in the gaps and you know yeah if you're a child reading this book <laughs> would you <laughs> fill in the gaps the same way you know as an adult you i mean like i said it begins by saying how dark it is when when peter does go to wendy as an adult at the end of the book he's been going back for her over and over again and then one day he just doesn't and so for years he's gone and she even begins to forget to the point where even Michael comes to her one night and and she says, are you waiting for him? And she says, you know, he's not going to come. And, and Michael just uh, suddenly, she's like, maybe he wasn't real to begin with. Like, Michael suddenly has this realization and he's the youngest. You know, he's mm-hmm. the one that would hold on to this yes. longer. But, you know, when Peter does finally come to her as, a, as an older woman, you know, it's it, it, it starts by saying... The tragedy began on this day. You know, yes. it's it's described yeah. as a tragedy. Why? The book ends, ju- you know, it, saying he goes to Jane and the Margaret and so on. That's how it ends. It's end. Done. Yeah, they're, you know, they're going to no come more. to, like, clean his, his little yeah, house. Yeah, so you and- can imagine, and, and some people will say, well, that's just, you know, he's keeping the connection alive between him and Wendy, you know, by sharing this adventure with, huh. with their children. If so, then why is it referred to as a tragedy? You know, I mean, and why I, doesn't he remember them? Yeah, why? That's the thing that I don't understand. It, is how? That's why I think that there's something in the pixie dust that exactly. there, there's got to be some like he's I don't know because Peter doesn't need it all the time to my understanding like he just him and tink but tink has to give the kids yeah, you know he, some he, pixie dust so that they can they can fly he's holding her as he enters the room yes so it's on his hand and at first he tries to get them to fly by jumping off of things for pure entertainment value because he knows <laughs> yeah your fault. he knows it's not going to work <laughs> so then he's like okay we'll do it for real and he, he essentially wipes the fairy dust onto the kids and they are able to fly so and, and like i said before 
from the beginning, as soon as they leave, John has that thought. Has it, is it night or is it day? How long have we been doing this? So I do like, I think it's the pixie dust or something in Peter's being that causes them to forget. And especially he's, he's got to have some kind of hold, especially over women, because even the fact that even Mrs. Darling will sort of think of him fondly and not curse him, mm-hmm. having taken her children, uh, leads you to believe that he's got some kind of power. And the fact that also Peter is very good friends with the, with the, the sirens. And yes, and they're cons- they don't mind hanging out with him. But uh, another thing about when Hook's demise is that Hook is deathly afraid of the lagoon. Mm-hmm. The lagoon to Hook is the most terrifying place on the entire island because of the sirens. And they are they gladly hang out with Peter. He is accepted by them. So is Peter? A male siren. That's what I take away from it sometimes, is that Peter is just a male siren. That's why they, they get along with him, and that's why he has his power over women. He doesn't so much have power over, uh, uh, other than a scary uh, <laughs> power over the boys. The boys are just scared of what the he'll do to them. Wendy, even early on before they leave, Wendy says, we probably shouldn't go or something along those lines. And he says, no, but Wendy, the mermaids, the mermaid, and she immediately forgets. It's like, oh, mermaids. You know, so every every time she starts to drift back, he'll say, "No, no, no. We have pirates. We have mermaids." And she go, she keeps saying, "Ooh, ooh." You know, so she, she's. I mean, it says she's fourteen at the start of the book, and that mm-hmm. Peter. They don't say how old Peter is at all, but she says that Peter is as big as Wendy. So you would think that he's around, at least in looks, around 13, 14 years old. You know, she has the presence of mind, even even while they're in Neverland to remember her parents, to remember where they're from, to try to get her brothers to remember them as well, but they start to fade more and more as it goes along, you know? Well, it makes me, it makes me wonder if Peter Pan, Peter Pan's character could essentially just be us as humans and, and the capability of things that human beings can do and how we can be like these very egotistical even dangerous beings, just like what you know. But the the thing about his hold over like Wendy and and all of the darling women that that is something that I didn't understand. I mean, again, I think you know he's got some mad pixie dust that he just throws in her face. You know, he's all shoot, she's forgetting. <laughs> you know, uh, and we haven't, we really haven't scratched the surface of any of this. No, really. no, no, I mean, no, We've been going on for who knows how long, and it's just there's so much. I mean. It's it's all it's all there, and it's it's very fairly plainly written. You just have to read it for what it is. When it says Peter thins them out, you you know what that means. <laughs> right. You know, if if you want to ignore that, it's written in such a way that it's it's a fantasy. It it is very quick to read. You can very quickly read this book, and see it as a fantasy. But you know, and and I didn't go into it thinking he's the villain. He's a psychopath. I'm gonna read it as Peter's a psychopath. <laughs> I just started reading, and it's it. He starts off by saying how terrible this event is in the lives of the darlings, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and there are a lot of things. I mean, Peter, he starves the lost boys. He cuts them. He <laughs> alters them. The thing, John, he alters John, which you don't 
He doesn't alter the rest of them, but it, it says alters. He alters them to fit these holes in the trees so mm-hmm. that they can get underground. Uh, if you've ever seen Hook, they live in they live in the canopies, which they eventually do at the end. He says something along the lines of, "We now live with the fairies in the treetops." Mm-hmm. When he goes back for Wendy, but for the whole of the novel, they they live underground. You know. Uh, until they build that house. They build the house for Wendy because Wendy gets shot in the chest by an arrow, <laughs> falls to the ground, and doesn't get up. So they think she's dead. And only with a little bit of strength is she's able to reach up and grab Peter's arm to show that she's okay. And he, at that moment, he he says to Tink, you're gone. Get out. He's like, I, ne- I want you gone forever. And it's because of Wendy that he says, oh, well, maybe for a week. So Wendy has sympathy for Tink and convinces him not to do it, but only by touching his arm. But so because they don't want to move her and take her underground, they decide to build a house around her so she doesn't have to move. So that's the only reason the house is even there. Because she got shot in the chest. she got shot in the yeah. chest. Yeah. She got... I don't know. I I feel like for me, it's it's softened the blow listening to Jim Dale because there there were points in it that I had to rewind. I'm like, wait, did I is did I really hear this? Yeah. Because you're right. It's so it's just thrown in there, just kind of like a second. It's 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 just like a second thought. You know, you you aren't going to think about it anymore, and you read this line. All right, let's go to the next thing. Because you're right. It goes like there's just constant there's constant conflict or something going on with yeah. Peter Pan. I mean, I finished it. You know, I finished listening to it, and and I was almost happy to to go back to desperation because it like it ruined my childhood. I'm like this, this is Peter Pan. I love so now I you know I'm gonna go back and I want to watch the Disney Peter Pan just to see if there's some. I want to see if there's unsteady fairies stumbling over Peter, and I want to see like how the, I can't remember how the situations dealt with Michael, right? Yeah. Like when he's cut or altered. Well, John, he, John, he alters John, 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 and they, you don't know how, and you don't you don't see anything, and you know even when they go back. At the end, you know, like if I, I would think if he lost a, a limb, the parents would say, "Oh, hey, John, what happened here? Where's uh, that leg?" But yeah, where's that leg? What happened to you? But, um, but say so that you don't know how he alters them or anything. But this this persists to the very end. <laughs> Peter's constant. Peter's character he does not change. He does not grow. At the very end, when when Wendy is trying to tell him to stay, uh, she says to him, "You know, isn't there something you want to speak to my mother about?" No. Isn't there something, something sweet you want to say? And she, what she's yeah, oh saying, my God, yes. what she's saying is that she has affection for him, and she's wanting him to stay. Not maybe not to be with her, but this is a boy, essentially, mom. This is a boy I like. Yeah. Uh, boy I like. This is my mother. This is what she's trying to say, and he just keeps saying no. No, and he, he, every time he keeps trying to fly away until Mrs. Darling comes out and says to him, you know, hey, well, you can stay. So he all he wants to do is brush her off. He realizes at that moment that I've lost whatever mother figure I was playing with uh, in my downtime here. <laughs> so away I go to find another one. And, you know, it's Wendy who gives him that pact with the devil, you know, where she's You're like, hey, right. coming back. And it says, it says earlier, like, but when they leave, it, the voice, the narrator says, uh, you know, it's Wendy who chooses this because she's, she's all about to not go. And then she is convinced to leave and she tells Peter, like, you know, we'll go. So it's, it's almost like they're saying, 
here's the moment where Wendy curses herself. You know, because they, <laughs> no, they exactly. all but blame Wendy for they all, the narrator. I mean, all but blames Wendy for the events to follow in this line, and it's and so you have this idea that yeah, she she cursed herself. You know. Yeah, because she, she's like, hey, you know, as long as I get to see you, I, I'll come clean your house yeah. one week out of the year as long as, you know, I, I can see you every year. <laughs> really and truly, there's so much. It, it's a small book. It's a it's a very it easy is. read. It's very easy to get through. But there's so much. And, and maybe it's just because as people, both you and I, I think, tend to <laughs> look at these things and it's like, all right, we're going to we really got to like break this down. And see, here it is. Uh it says, uh, don't go, Peter, she entreated. I know such lots of stories. Okay, so he, he's about to leave. He kind of realizes that she doesn't want to go with him, and she's about, he's about to leave. And she says, I know such lots of stories. Those were her precise words. So there can be no denying that it was she who first tempted him. Okay, so the narrator is saying in that right there, like, this is on her, you know? She and it, tempted Peter. Yeah, and... That's it's the first of many lines where it's just you know how girls are, you know. And really, like she when when she's taking care of the lost boys, Michael is her baby, and it says uh, something to the effect of, you know how women are. Michael was the littlest, so he's the baby. <laughs> and what does that mean? You know how women are, and it, that's the narrator saying that to you, the reader. You know yeah. how women are. Well, how do I know yeah, how women are? I mean, maybe because I am one. I mean, and and you know, given that. <clears throat> She spends almost the, the entirety of her time either fleeing for her life <laughs> or underground dining socks, making food. It says that she spends weeks under, never going yeah. above ground. She stays in that little house they have underground taking care of them for weeks. Says she preferred. And she's a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> and, you know, and, yeah, she says things like, you know, Oh, uh, uh, some would say a spinster has the, you know, has the has the life or something like that. Like, you know, she's a fourteen year old girl saying like, oh, spinsters have it made. They don't got to deal with this crap. Like, <laughs> what what is this? And meanwhile, and they're off having adventures. And and she says, or the the narrator says, like, even Wendy doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what they're getting. She says sometimes Peter will come back with a bandage on his head and she'll wash his hair as he tells her what he's been through, but sometimes he won't. He'll just return. And meanwhile, they have all gone on some crazy thing, doing whatever, and he just shows up and he's like, what's for dinner? You know, I mean, like, it's it's crazy. Well, yeah, because, and then on top of that, she, at night... It, it says that without Peter knowing that he, like, cries in his sleep and she'll grab him up and, you know, pet him, essentially, like, you know, and comfort him. But Peter could never know. She would never tell Peter that she did this for him. Yeah. It's like, well, why not? What What is he going to do to you, Wendy? Yeah, What's... I mean, I, I you can't help but think that maybe Wendy knows that... Peter will not remember, you know, even if she were to say, you know, Peter, they're there, you know, I'm, I'm here for you and it's going to be all right. Within within minutes, he might forget, you know, and yeah, Wendy, no, Wendy's exactly. the only one in the story who says to other characters, out loud to other characters, I fear he will forget us. Mm-hmm. You know, I fear he won't remember us. And, you know, no other, even the Lost Boys don't say that. They uh, Slightly, there's a character called Slightly. 
who he makes the uh, a doctor when 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 he gets shot, he puts the John stovetop hat on Slightly's head and he says, "Doctor, you know what? What can you do for?" And it says that Slightly doesn't know what to do because he understands that. In reality, he's not a doctor, and he can't do anything. But Peter doesn't know that, so slightly makes up. He he makes up putting a thermometer in her mouth, and surprise, surprise, she's fine. You know, because right, at that right. moment she kind of she you know shows signs of life. So he did it. But even even his lost boys even slightly knows that you know I'm a child and I've got nothing here, but I can't say it because what will he do to me once I do? You know. Yeah, and they live in fear of him, you know, and they and they state that clearly. Uh, I think Toodles states very clearly, like I'm afraid of what Peter will do, and so they go along, and whatever he do- says, they do, and they've got no choice. <laughs> Toodles no just choice. Toodles just like yeah, I'm gonna do it, Toodaloo. Yeah, like and, uh, <laughs> and the, the the big thing I I I, I, want, I just want to say, you know, as we I guess we we're winding down we're here. We're winding down. Um, is that they. At the end of the book, they make it a point in the last chapter to say, uh, well, I bet you're wondering what happened to the boys. And they explain that the boys, each of them, essentially rue the day that they left Neverland. Like, mm-hmm. essentially, they wanted, they they have these lives now, but they always wish they had stayed with Peter. And it describes every one of them and what they've become. And they become judges. They become, you know, uh, shop owners or whatever office men. But each and every one of them are described as just ordinary. Wendy is an ordinary woman. Oh, a big woman is in terms of how it's written. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Jane, when she grows up, she grows up to be an ordinary woman. And then Margaret's in the picture. So all of these people grow up to be what we would consider uh, to have good lives. Yeah, you know, I mean, absolutely. They, they, for, from what we can infer, especially I, I think it's John who has... They say he has kids or something, but to to Barry at least to have an ordinary life, to have any life other than the life of a child, is meaningless. Mm-hmm. The only meaning you'll ever find is in childhood. Later on, much later on, I mean, near the end of his life, he he says that the the true meaning of Peter Pan came to him only later in life, and he says the true meaning came to me: desperate attempt to grow up, but can't. Yeah, he, I know he was always considered to really, you know, be kind of stuck yeah. in that child, that childish type of mind. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched Finding Neverland. Yes. Yes, yep. with Johnny Depp it's and the, Kate Winslet. The fairy tale story of the, all that. Of all of, of well, to, yeah, yeah, technically him. Which it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, yeah, that movie, it was sad. Obviously, it shows, you know, Kate Winslet being their mother and she's dying and they're putting on this play. That's, you know, the point is just this play. But I do believe that that was that was Barry's thing. Like he maybe he really was this innocent man. You know, it's it's it looks weird when we're an adult. Right. And we see this older gentleman who's kind of taken in. He's not older. He's. 37 who said he's like taking in these kids yeah and all that's creepy and that's not but maybe that had nothing that had nothing to do with it at all it was just he could still connect to his childhood or being a child so it's easier for maybe him to you know I, you know, I I, and I I always go back to I mean I don't I never I didn't read a biography on J.M. Barry or anything like that I just did a, I do a lot of research and you know the fact that he was a he was a child when his his 
a teen brother died. He, yeah. He died. He was dead. He, he hit his head on the ice. He fractured his skull. He died. So at a very young age, his conception of life and death was blurred. So when you read Peter Pan and you see that Peter, ha- Peter he, he, he sees reality and mm-hmm. uh, fantasy as one, it's almost like he kills and then he expects people to just jump up and go, oh, nice, nice game, Peter. You know, right. he just kills like, like it's nothing. And when you think about the fact that that's probably how Barry thought of things, at least for a little while, you know, at least when he was a, a, a child, a child. Yeah. he would have no other way of uh, thinking about it other than like... The game is over. It must be over because my brother is not here. You know, he, he yes, he died, but he didn't get up. You know, it's like, so I think he wrote that into Peter, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's a, maybe a way of to a way to confront his grief, his feelings, yeah. his grief. You know, like I don't I, I don't I can face this every day knowing my brother is not here, but Peter never will. He doesn't have you know, to yeah. remember those things. He doesn't have yeah. to, or he doesn't. I mean, again, we don't know. We don't know what mechanism there is that makes Peter not remember anything. <laughs> but he doesn't remember his parents. He doesn't. Uh, even Toodles remembers his parents. He remembers his mother as wanting a checkbook. Yes. And he's like, I would do anything to give my mother a checkbook. And he has no idea what a checkbook is. But that's what he remembers of his mother. So even the Lost Boys remember something. Peter remembers nothing. Or, or he doesn't care to. Or if he does, he never says a word. It's never revealed. All he remembers is, I, I ran away because I didn't want to grow up. And I, I, I could hear my parents talking about what would happen to me. Like that scene in Hook yes, where his mom's yes. like, you're going to go to the best schools. Essentially, he heard that conversation and ran away. And so we don't know. I mean, he could very well remember all of it <laughs> and just choose to be a jerk about it. But, you know, it's never stated. And that, I mean, that really is just so much more tragic you know all of it is made so much more tragic by not knowing at least Stephen King spelled out a lot for you I mean you you know what's going on with that car in in, uh, Christine man you know what Cujo's problem is but like you just you never know and at least in a King book it's it's at least spelled out for you in a way that you get a, a general idea of how things are operating in Wendy and Peter, or, or Peter and Wendy, you you don't have any idea. You don't even know how and why Neverland works. It, is is this whole thing a dream that Mrs. Darling has at the beginning of the book? Because at the end of the book, she wakes up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Mrs. Yeah. Darling wakes up in the same chair and looks around the room at what were once empty beds and sees her children in the beds. So, so has it, she dreamed this entire yes, thing? Yes. Is, is all of it just in her head and... You know, and there's some other sinister thing that happens to her children that she's, you know, covering, you know, in her mind, you know, covering for, making up a story for. I mean, it's all so unclear. You just have to read it for what it is. And if you do, you realize that Peter is a sociopath (laughs) and loves to kill. And really, he forgets his kills. The first thing, when they get to Neverland, he says, you want to have an adventure? And they're like, what do you want to do? And he sees a pirate down there. He's like, we can go kill that pirate down there. (laughs) The first thing, the very first thing, we can kill that pirate. And they're like, well, if he's sleeping, we don't want to kill a sleeping pirate. He's like, of course I'd wake him up first. It's not fun if he's asleep. Seriously, he, he he wants, he wants to go the kill fight. the pirate, but he wants to wake him up because he wants to have fun doing it. You know? Yeah, he wants to see it's, him die. It's he wants fun. to watch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I mean, and so I think, you know, we now have an assignment for our first podcast for everyone who listens to this that you need to go read Peter Pan. See, you know, I mean, because there's so much, you know, what what opinion do you have? And again, definitely check out uh, Hoopla and Libby. Check with your local library. All you need is a library card. And, and you have, you know, I can tell you that Hoopla and Libby both have Peter Pan. Um, yes, I've, I've been reading it on Hoopla. And as I, as I said before, Hoopla allows you to, in case you're someone like me who tends to forget things, uh, you can highlight points of interest and then you can look at those highlights in a list. So you can essentially build your own outline for anything, any book, any graphic, anything you want to read. You can build a, a syllabus, an outline, and so, yeah. and it's and it's free it's with free. a with a with a library card, which is also free. I, I, there isn't a library in this country that will charge you for a library card. I assure you this. Yeah. Maybe to happen. replace a library. Maybe to replace card, one, yeah, but, but but Hoopla, Libby, um, Hoopla has just uh, so much comics and graphic novels, and you know, if you are a listener, you can listen mm-hmm. to, to to books on both platforms. Uh, they have magazines. I mean, if you yes. magazines are so expensive. And and you can literally uh, request to be uh, signed up for a magazine. Essentially, uh, you, you subscribe to it. And instead of getting it in the mail and paying for it, you get it every week for free. You get an email saying, hey, your your magazine is new. And you can read it right on your phone or, or tablet or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But it's there. It's there, yeah. Do we have time for uh, Front Cage News real quick? I've, if you want to do a quick there. Front Cage News. It's time for Front Cage News. This is a, a little bit old. It's from May, but still, it's it's fairly relevant. And for any of you out there with uh, money to burn, uh, I mean, this is just uh, the best option for seven point five million dollars. But uh, Nicholas Cage is selling his private island for seven point five million dollars. He bought the island. Uh, it's got you know places for a boat. It's got structures. It's secluded. You can you can you can buy an island and fly there. Uh, not have to worry about anybody uh, messing with your stuff. Uh, it's it's free to build on. I mean, the sky's the limit. You're looking at a lot of money, you know. But uh, you know, for that kind of privacy and and the, just the prestige. Hey, I uh, thank you for coming to my island. I don't know if you know this, but it was owned by Nick Cage. And you call it the Neverland. You can call it the Neverland. You can call it anything you, you want. You can call it the Neverland. That's right. You can cage yourself like Nicolas Cage. Yes, you can cage. cage. And I, you know, he, I, he says that you know he had he bought it to uh, to build a little area, a little for himself, a, a secluded place to to hang his hat, I guess. So if you're you're inclined to do so, it's on the market. I'm sure any uh, real estate agent could point you in the right direction. I mean, hey, uh, I'm interested in that Nick Cage Island, uh, <laughs> and I've got I've got seven point five million dollars. So. Um, what do you think? He bought it for three. I mean, so and it's oh. it's gone up in value. Uh, I wonder it, what he did to it. Yeah, he. I don't know if he did anything. I I, I mean, you know, I I'm reading this from <laughs> from the internet. I don't know Nick. He hasn't told me anything. You aren't on like a first name basis uh, with Nick. It would be nice. That would be hey, the best Nick. thing ever. Like, hey, uh, you know, I'm I'm I married. Uh, we're expecting our first child. Uh, at the Yay. end of the year, which would be awesome. Fanfare. So we're going to have our little family unit. And, you know, so it would be great to just call up and be like, hey, Uncle Nick's coming <laughs> for Thanksgiving. You know, we're going to move into Uncle Nick's great. house yeah, on this island. He, and he could do anything you want. Nick, you, you can use any voice you want at my family gathering, okay? It's just me, my wife, 
my my soon child will be there. I'll find out Wednesday if it's a boy or a girl. Yay. Um, my child will be there. But Nick, you can do whatever you want. You can bring your kids. Uh, he has kids. Um, Kal-El and oh, is, it, is it Winston? I don't know. He wrote a graphic novel that is, oh, okay. For all of you out there, oh, I'm going to end it Nick, uh, front cage news with this. Nick Cage has a graphic novel. I think it's called Voodoo Child. And he wrote it with and for his son. And it is the most ass-backwards, bizarre shit you will ever read in your entire life. And it's, 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 it's a graphic novel. There, not only can you read this crazy story, but you have pictures to back it all up. So if you're able to find it, Voodoo Child. Wow. Wow. As Nick would say, wow. Uh, <laughs> But that is that. I think that might wrap it up for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. My name is Joshy. People do call me that. Uh, I'll just maybe I'll end it with this: that uh, <laughs> I can't, came into work one day, and one of my coworkers started saying "Hey, Joshy" to me as I was walking about, and I heard her say this. And I, I usually I, I allow a few people to call me Joshy as like a term of endearment, but she was just saying Josh, and I, and I was like. I, I, did, I didn't address it. I just let it go. And, and eventually she was like, are you okay with me calling you Joshy? And I said, you know what? You can call me anything you want. It's fine. It's, so now it's become people at work call me Joshy. And then, you know, people like my mother-in-law will call me Joshy. It's just a term of endearment. But now it's out there and anyone, and now you're Joshy. anyone can use it. You're Joshy. Um, so uh, don't go taking your turns too wide. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That's a little advice from uh, Jordan Catalano. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it on home. Let's bring it all the way around. That's a little advice from Jordan Catalano. Uh, it's the best he could muster after uh, breaking up with Angela. So. so, yeah. So there we have it. All right. I mean, definitely uh, keep a watch out. I think we're planning on doing this every other week. Okay. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Pop tarts are good for you. We don't know, you know, if pop tarts are good for you, but maybe eventually we well, will maybe, figure this out. Maybe we'll get into that. Yeah. Next episode, next episode we should yeah. talk about what our favorite pop tarts are and if we like them Let, or not. Let's just say there there is a there is a, a there was anyway. It's been settled, but there was a, a legal standing as to <laughs> as to whether or not pop tarts were in fact uh, made with real fruit filling. Uh, and I, the fact that there are people in this world who got together, it was a class action lawsuit, meaning not one person, many people had to get together and get a lawyer and say, you know what, I don't think there's a lot of fruit filling in this. Uh, we got to sue somebody. The fact that that happened in this world just is a beautiful thing to me. Yes. Uh, the, you know, the fact that you could be like, you know what, uh, these Pop-Tarts are making me feel like crap. I think I'm going to sue Kellogg's. And then do it. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's America. <laughs> you want to talk about freedom? There you go. They lost. Uh, I'm, okay. <laughs> they lost the lawsuit. But that, to me, says on Kellogg's part. Because, see, Kellogg's is a multinational corporation. They have billions of dollars. For them to sit there in a courtroom and be like, hey, well, actually, we have evidence, would take them half an hour. It would be nothing. Yes. They could easily just be like, we're going to dispel this rumor right now. But they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> this thing is, they've been around. They were around. Yes, they have a digital paper trail. But they also have an actual paper trail. Pop-Tarts has an actual. They've been around for so long that there are actual. You can hold them in your hand. Documents. 
that could say definitively yes or no, is there fruit in this Pop-Tart? And they refuse to tell us. They just don't. They, they don't know. It's very cryptic if you look on the box. It's the thing is the lawsuit was about the box. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, about there's it fruit, claiming. There's fruit on the box. There's got to be fruit in the Pop-Tart. On the box, very cryptically, it'll say something t- along the lines of 2% of the filling is like, you know, pear puree and strawberries and whatever, you know. Sometimes it'll say 10%. Sometimes it won't. So even even yeah. Pop-Tarts is like, you know, we know the answer. They have to know the answer. They have to. But yeah. I, it's inconceivable to me that there it doesn't exist, at least somewhere, like 30 seconds of footage of two guys on an assembly line going... What do you think, man? Fifteen <laughs> uh, percent, like that to me. That's Exhibit A right there. That would that would yes. end the case. They'd be like, "Hey, uh, Your Honor, Exhibit A, we have footage, uh, and uh, yes, these guys are just on a semi line, but you know they do work for us. So I'm, we're going to say that they you know what they're talking about. That's it for me. As just a guy who eats pop tarts and works at a library, I'm I'm fine with that. Hey, that guy said fifteen percent on the video. 15%, good enough. But no, they decided, no, we're just going to throw this out and let it be done. And let there, so and there we, we don't have know. it. And as I tell my wife all the time, when, when, when uh, you know, confronted with the facts, if they don't say it, then I can always assume it's true. Is Gary Sinise really a lizard wearing human skin? I don't know. He hasn't provided proof to the contrary, so I'm going to say yes, he is. Okay, so as long as Pop-Tarts are willing to say, hey, you make it up in your own mind how much actual fruit is in this stuff, I'm going to say Pop-Tarts are good for you. And there you have it. That's that's the first episode. Pop-Tarts are good for you. good for you, that's right. Yes. And if you have evidence to the contrary, we have an email address. Pop tarts are good for you, Doc. Or not Doc.com. <laughs> That's right. We're just taking over the internet now. Pop tarts are good for you at gmail.com. Or like us on Facebook. <laughs>